Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, just a quick trigger warning. We talk about childhood sexual abuse in this episode. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Holly. Holly Peralt is an adult childhood survivor and has been a champion and advocate for survivors of sexual abuse since she was an adolescent. She is the Northern Ireland ambassador for National Alliance of Adult Survivor of Childhood Abuse. Holly is the editor and publisher of two books, Missy's Secret and Dylan's Secret, which are written to help children end their own end their own sexual abuse. She is a public speaker and an adult survivor, uh, survivor recovery advocate. At the heat of Holly's warrior story is the message that breaking the silence is the key to breaking the generational cycle of sexual abuse. She shares her very personal examples of how she did exactly that And this drives her passion to lobby and advocate opportunities for adult recovery programs for all survivors of sexual abuse. In 2018, Holly sold everything, quit her job in the tech industry, traveled for five months to say goodbye or say her goodbyes, then moved for love to to Northern Ireland. Currently, Holly is in her final year of studying therapeutic communications and counseling at Ulster University in Northern Ireland. I hope I said that right. (laughs) And her dissertation research is on how to enhance opportunities for abuse survivor recovery. She is a certified professional life coach and is hoping to start an organization for intensive survivor programs in Northern Ireland. And you said there's some updates. Do you need to add to that? (laughs) (laughs) um well I'll tell you so it's interesting that's on June 7th you said this is releasing and on June 8th I'm doing a TEDx speaking speech but I'm so excited about it's so exciting yeah it's something I've wanted to do for about eight to ten years it's been on kind of my mental vision board not and uh yeah so I got selected to do that in in um Belfast in Northern Ireland so that's exciting and just the same, the same week I got asked to speak at the, um, international trauma summit as their lived experience speaker. So it's like Peter Levine speaking and all these heavy, I call them the heavy trauma hitters, you know, that are, and then me. (laughs) And so that's really, really exciting. So that's on the 23rd and that's actually live. We're doing that one live. They're recording the TEDx one because of COVID, but, um, Yeah. That's exciting. exciting. Well, people will have to connect with you on the socials that I'm going to link up in the show notes so they can watch that. Um, I'm also a child abuse survivor, all all the abuses, all of them, all of the, all of the things, (laughs) all the things. Yeah. Pick pick one. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sorry about that. Yeah, I did. I did get that very clear out of your discussions. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, you know, um, but I, I agree with you talking about it is very important. That's, that's part of the inspired women podcast is sharing stories. Yeah. Cause I feel like even if you haven't been through it, you can learn from somebody else's story. Um, and hopefully prevent repeating that cycle. Right. Once you, yeah. once you can identify the signs, 
then maybe you can put a stop to it. Or, you know, maybe you can get somebody help if it's already happened. So um, I would love for you to kick us off with sharing a little bit. I mean, no gory details. There will be a trigger warning on the top of this, but um, what happened to you? What was your story? Yeah. So, you know, I, I say that I was born kind of guzzling toxic stress from the umbilical cord. Because um, when I, when my mom got pregnant with me, they had just experienced her dad um, dying unexpectedly on the operating table. Wow. Um, She grew up, she had rheumatic fever. So she was on the couch for a year and missed all of first grade, their house burnt to the ground. I mean, my mom grew up with quite a bit of traumatic experiences back in the, you know, sixties. I'm dating myself there, but that's all right. (laughs) My mom was born in the sixties too. Yeah. So, well, she was born, she was actually born in the forties. Yes. I was born in the sixties, but you know, back in then she was pretty young when she had me, there was just not a lot of help and all that. Right. And I, I I think her dad was probably most likely a, an alcoholic. Right. So she had a younger brother and younger sister. And why I mention that is, when she got pregnant with me, um, my, now I didn't know this until I was 11 years old, but my biological father didn't really want to get on board with it. Wasn't hundred percent sure. I think that he was my father and my mom, you know, single, didn't have anyone. And in walks this man into this tiny little town and really took my whole family who had just suffered this huge loss under his wing and became a hero to that family. And I grew up in a tiny little fishing town um, where if you sneezed, everybody kind of knew you had a cold. Yeah. That's where I grew up. Yeah. 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 So um, (laughs) he was kind of just because he was new to this town, you know, and he just was this hero. So he ended up um, when my mom was right after I was born, I think they got together somewhere in that timeframe and he, there was, I think, some domestic violence. In fact, I know that he beat her up so bad that he put her in the hospital. And she basically wow. said, you know, I'm taking Holly and we're tapping out. And he said, I'll never touch you again. And he didn't, from what I understand. Um, but very shortly after that, he started sexually abusing me. And so I was three years old. Wow. Yeah. And I know I was three because... When I told, finally at 14, my mom told me that I had told when I was three, but again, no support, right? Family's like, you you kidding? You're going to, you know, believe a three-year-old over this big strapping hero of a man, right? Who had groomed the whole family. So nobody believed me and I never said anything again. And that abuse lasted until I was 11. And it stopped because he and my mom got a divorce and he um, married somebody else immediately. And so at the same time is when they informed me that he was actually not my uh, biological father and someone else was, but I wasn't to tell because everybody knew who this other person was, but his wife didn't know. So there's all this, yeah, lots of secrets. Now they didn't know I was keeping a secret about the abuse. They had no idea. Right. So now I've got two big secrets I'm keeping and I'm 11 years old. Um, so, so weirdly enough, I just did it. I just kept the secret. (laughs) I didn't think anything about it. 
So at 14, my mom had remarried um, a wonderful man who has been my stepfather for 35 years. He basically, what I would say, you know, raised me into those troubled years. But when I was 14, I was watching an after-school special. I, actually, I think it was an after-school special that had happened at do a primetime evening show. And it was called Something About Amelia with Ted Danson and Glenn Close back then, very young. And um, it was all about abuse and what happens when the father moves from the older child to the younger child. And it was like, I call it my God two by four moment. It was literally like I had been hit over the head, get your ass up and go tell somebody. And I did. I immediately got up. As soon as it it dawned on me by the end of the show, I got up and went and told my mom. And that's when she said, yeah, she kind of had known that. Now she never said that she knew all the time. She, you know, I, I will never know because my mom passed away a couple of years ago. So I'll never know if she knew all the time. But um, at some point I had said something. So, so what happened next then was the police got involved, of course, in Child Protective Services. And what was important here is he had married a woman that had two children. And so within 24 hours, the police had asked me to go down with them to talk to my little stepsister and stepbrother and ask them. And they had me actually do the asking when I was 14. And unfortunately, he had been abusing them from the beginning. So three years had gone by and they were seven and 10 at the time I saw that I had asked this question. So he basically just left left my bed and right into theirs. And it was a boy and a girl. So it was horrific to say the least. Um, so I ended up testifying against him. Now, interestingly enough, at the time in the state of Washington, the statute of limitations had already passed, even though it had only been a couple of years for me. Wow. And so they didn't charge him for me, but I testified on behalf of the little ones because they were too little to testify And his sister had also testified. She had never said anything, but he had abused her all through their adolescence, horrifically, brought his friends over. It was awful. And she never said a word either. So this is where I'm so passionate about telling because, you know, I dealt with a lot. I didn't know I had guilt. I had so much guilt over not telling, even though I was a kid, but, you know, my aunt, had never said anything. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't say anything. And so just the patterns of abuse. um, And unfortunately, I just found out less than a month ago that he, because he only spent a couple years in jail. Oh, yeah, I know that. Mm -hmm. I know. I heard your, I heard your, uh, one of your stories today. That was the other one I listened to. And I heard you say that, that he only spent four years and it's about the similar thing. Yeah. I found that he got out the little's mom let them come move him back into the house. What the hell? Yep. He abused her again and he abused three others. And I just found that out uh, less than a month ago. So I feel very betrayed by the state of Washington, really just betrayed because, Oh, and then, Oh no, it gets better. He has been invited off the sexual abuse predator list about 12 years after all of this. So he's not been on the predator list for many, many, many years. I'm so, sorry, but once somebody's on the list, they should just stay there for the rest of their lives. Like that's just, yeah, amazing. there's a piece of legislation that still exists today that says it's there to protect people who go to jail innocently for this. It's not to protect 
victims, of course. It's to right. protect. Yeah. I, I mean, if, which is very rare, let's put that out there. The chances of somebody being falsely accused of sexual abuse or assault is like less than 1% of the time. So I can understand if it comes out that the person's fault is it's false to take them off. But until then, no. But this guy they, was they need accused and then invited off for good behavior. Well, what the hell is good behavior? He didn't get caught. That's what good behavior is. Right. He didn't get caught, right? So so yeah, when I found out about this other kids recently, I was like, what, what the hell? And I think this goes to my next thing that's really important to me is recovery because yeah. for me, um, you know, after he went to prison, I, so I was 14, right. When he went just turning 15 and, um, just, I, I went and lived my life. I would live my teenage lives, had a good time, you know, all of that. And then did what any girl looking for safety did is I married a Marine when I was 18, <laughs> United States Marine safety first. Right. So, and had kids not too long after that and just, and had life. So I think that might've saved me from going off the deep end, to be honest, that, and I think, um, putting him in jail, having some justice. I, again, I can go back now and think these are the things that probably helped me. And then forgiveness. I would say I never really had that hatred in my heart. I, I, I just forgave. I forgive a lot. And so, um, I think that has a lot to do with it. So I was able to live, um, pretty, you know, from the outside, nobody would know unless I told them that I'd been abused. People would not know about it. And, uh, um, I had, so I, you know, no drugs, no alcohol, none of that stuff, what was happening for me. And again, looked like a lot of people was I had um, a shopping addiction and a massive work addiction. And what I realized now is I hadn't, I was an adrenaline junkie, but not the fun kind that you jump out of planes or go skiing or that kind of stuff. I was not at that at all. In fact, far from the truth, I was the kind that loved a good sale. If I got a bargain, oh my gosh, like that hit. Or if I could work hard and someone acknowledge the work and then I get a promotion or a raise or a bonus, a hit, huge hit. And that's how my adrenaline, that was my, that was my drugs. And so that lasted for years and years. And then when I was 40, it kind of all fell to shit, frankly. I'd been married 23 years. Kids would get, you know, all grown up and um, my marriage fell apart. And he and I had made a conscious decision that in order to not fuck up our children, we were going to go to counseling, which I thought was very adult of us. And we were like, we're going to go figure out how not to screw them up and how to get through this without, you know, causing any more damage than might already been done. And we saw a therapist who told me very clearly, you need to work on those childhood wounds because I hadn't with a counselor. People knew, but nobody dug into it with me, which is so strange. All those years, nobody went and said, yeah, you know, there's, you need to get some serious help about it. Nobody really did. And he was the first one that said, you've got to go figure it out and handed me a card to a recovery place in Tucson where I happened to live. And within three weeks, I checked myself in. I just didn't care about the money anymore. I had to tell my kids, my kids did not know about my childhood. So that was tough. And they were pretty upset with me as it was. And so having to tell them in that situation, which goes back to 
telling your story and telling it early and telling it to the people you love and can trust. Because at the time I told them, they're like, "Mm, yes, that sucks for you, but it doesn't excuse your behavior. Right. Right. Um, So I went and spent 30 days in a intensive program, residential program. And I believe everybody should get 30 days in an intensive program. It should be a standard, yeah. standard for everybody. No laptop, no phone. Um, it, and what I learned there, because keep in mind, I didn't really realize, you know, I wasn't, I didn't even take aspirin. So I was there with people who everybody but me, kid you not, took a sleeping pill to just sleep. And I just didn't have any of these things. And so I have night terrors. Yeah. Right. And so I, I just didn't have those things. And so to go there, I had no idea what I was getting into because I didn't know what I needed to fix. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I didn't, I I didn't know what I was, I was like, I don't know what I'm trying to fix, but clearly I'm jacked up. So I've got to figure it out. And, um, one of the things I dealt with, I had no idea was this horrifying guilt about those kids. Yeah. I just carried. I feel that about my sister. Cause my, yeah. my sister and I were both molested by my uncle and I, and we, I've been dealing with this in therapy is I feel guilt. Like I could have saved her. Had I just said something, maybe it would have stopped it. Like it wouldn't have happened to her. And that's something that I've had to work through in, in therapy. We, before the pandemic happened and we had to go virtual, we we're doing EMDR therapy with me Yeah, because I blocked out a lot of that. Um, and then we're doing the therapy and it's coming back to me and I'm like, holy crap, like that's a lot, but yeah, I felt that go too. I felt, yeah, it. you know, and it's EMDR was one of the things I had, I, I had an incident that I could not. And I, I just want to throw this out there. Cause I know a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about EMDR. And I was one of them was like, I'm not, that's foo-foo. I'm no way in hell am I trying that, <laughs> but, but I had a particular memory that, one specific one that when I thought about it, I would need to throw up. Like it was so horrifying for me. And I thought, okay, if it could even get me to a point where I can, if the memory comes through, I don't have this horrible body reaction. And it did. It helped me with that, that I can even talk to you about it now without having an effect. Right. Even though Mm -hmm. I'm not telling you what it is, because I'm I'm not going to tell what it was because it was horrific, but EMDR saved me. I would say from that, that thing. Right. So yeah, the guilt was bad. And I, it took me all 30 days, all th- and still, still to this day, I have to, every once in a while, my therapist has to remind me that, you know, you were a kid, right? Like mm-hmm. that I Mine was a kid. Yeah. yeah. Cause I see myself on the stand. And when I do, I see myself as an adult. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for me to put a 14 year old into this. So I've been really trying to work on, I was a kid and there, you know, and unfortunately I've also been looking for adults who might've been in the courtroom because my mom um, couldn't handle her feelings. And so she did not go in the courtroom when I did this. And oh, my abuser was, my abuser was beat for me when I testified. Yeah. And I've been trying to find a, an adult who happened to be there to help me talk to me about what was I like. And I can't find anybody because they're all freaking dying. Frankly, everybody's getting, as I get older, everybody else getting older. Right. right. And so they either can't remember or they're dead. <laughs> um, so that's been a little bit frustrating, but yeah, I, it was a lot of guilt, a lot of guilt. I got to 
got to work through all because I say got to because it was a privilege for sure. I, I, I mean, I was. wish sometimes that I could have just had a 30 day intensive at some point. I, I said this like it's not too late. Yeah, I said this like <laughs> non with my husband's job. It's not going to happen anytime soon. But I said this flip kind of flippantly to somebody. I said, you know what? If I could just you know, go and be in a hospital and just work on myself for a month. That'd be like a vacation. They're like, that's horrifying. I'm like, I have so much up here that I've worked through. I mean, I've been in therapy for like, oh my God, seven years, almost eight years. I've been in therapy and I'm still working through things. And that's what people don't understand is like, if you could just take that like 30 days to like really hone in on this stuff it could make a world of a difference yeah it does because it's like getting so you're in therapy and when I say therapy just be people are like you're sitting with the therapist for 10 hours no you are in groups and you're doing psychodrama and you're getting your EMDR you may be having a massage if you're trying to work on somatic issues I mean but you are working you know you're writing and journaling and doing grief work it's freaking never-ending right and then on top of that I'm with 75 other people who are all dealing with their own shit. And then you start to bond. I mean, it's a really interesting, I think support of people who understand you Mm -hmm. is probably, if I look back, I think that was the top thing that helped me heal that. And then like psychodrama was really good for me, Um, but support works, support networks. And they sent me to a um, SLA meeting during that time, we went on a field trip and went to an SLA meeting and that became my home meeting for 12 before I moved um, out of Arizona. It was my home meeting to help me just have a group to go to. So um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I wished everybody could have the 30 days. I wish you could have the 30 days and, and that's, I'll get to this in just a second, but that is my dream. So, um, so after my 30 days, I got out and it, you know, I, I always thought, okay, I'm gonna get out of these 30 days. I'm going to be fixed. Super cool. That's not how that works. (laughs) Nope. It is not how it works. And so I, um, my husband and I went on with our divorce. And the other thing about the 30 days is he got a family week, which was super important. I think he got to go spend a week with other family members to work on himself. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think that's an important piece of any, um, especially intensive like that, because it was, and it was definitely not to make excuses for me. It was to educate. Yeah. It was really to educate him and give him support, you know, give him the support, which I thought was, um, and he did that. My kids couldn't go because it was right at the beginning of the school year for them when it was, you know, high school and college. And, but, but I think he did get a lot out of that. Get to go. Um, so after that, my next relationship, which is about a little over a year after that, um, new things showed up for me because, because I was healed from a lot of stuff, but now new things started yeah. healing. So now abandonment started showing up mm. big time because I had been abandoned several times throughout all of that, but hadn't even thought about it because I was too busy getting sexually abused. So abandonment wasn't even a thing, but I had been so many times that that start stuff started really showing up in my next relationship. Um, which sucked because then I would spend, what I don't know how to explain this, I guess not threatening to leave, but like always 
had a foot out the door. That's what I, he yep. always said, you, know, you have a foot out the door. And I didn't think I did, but it was, you That's know. how I was in the beginning of my marriage with my yeah. husband. I was like, uh, at our fifth anniversary, we've been married for over 10 years now, but on our fifth anniversary, I said, you know, I'm surprised you didn't divorce me. Like, because like, I, I mean, I'm, I have bipolar disorder at the time. We didn't know I had bipolar disorder, but I had bipolar disorder. I did all these messed up things, like all sorts of, you know, dealing with trauma, unresolved trauma causes all sorts of kind of things. Mm. Um, and he said, I never once thought about divorcing you. I'm like, I thought about it all the time. Like, like I was, I was ready. I was ready to just, because I'm so used to people just hurting me and, you know, these core wounds they talk about mine is I'm not good enough. So I'm always ready for somebody to just leave because I'm not good enough. And, uh, so I understand what you mean. I, for like the first, like five plus years of my marriage, I was like, um, you know, yeah. And it sucks. I mean, I think I was that way in my first marriage too, but it just showed up. I could recognize it the second time right. because I had 30 days under my yeah. belt. Right. Once you see it, thing, you can't unsee it. <laughs> you can't unsee it. The other thing that was going on for me that I had to work on was my mother. And so, mm-hmm. um, I think now I didn't know that I could say it today, but I definitely am at just recently I've started saying I wasn't just a sexual abuse survivor. I was an emotional abuse survivor because she, I spent from the time I was three and told her, I think I spent protecting her, Mm -hmm. protecting her feelings, protecting her from finding out protecting. And as I got older, it continued and she played on that. Um, I have a mom that does that as well. (laughs) Yeah. And so we were close, but not in a good, now I can look back and go, it was not good. And so as she got older and I got older, it got to a point where um, it, it was just bad. And I was financially supporting part of her. And then it was pretty bad. So in 2016, I had a great opportunity to go to Africa. I had been mentoring a girl and I got to go to Africa and meet her. And during that trip, something changed in me. And I think, you know, these people were happy. They freaking you know, lived in huts, peed in holes, and they were the happiest people I've ever met. Happy and gra- grateful and gratitude, right? And they spent 45 minutes, family member after family member, telling me with the translator how grateful they were for me and how I had changed by changing one girl's life, how I'd changed this entire community. Wow. And so I can't, and luckily I had my childhood friend with me because to witness it, because I probably wouldn't believe it that it happened and the things that you know, were said. And so I came back from there and I had kind of had it up to here with my mom. I I really wasn't putting up with her shit, frankly. And, um, she even said, ever since you got back from Africa, you know, you're changed. And that was in October. And by December, New Year's Eve, we had a pretty big incident and I was done. And I was Mm. just like, I can't, I'm not doing this anymore. Cause I, I want to live a different life and I can't do that. I can't babysit you. And Exactly. You know, I was such a rescuer. That's really what I was. I was a serial, yeah. serial rescuer, which is part of that adrenaline rush. Now I can look back now and see that it's all connected, but I was a serial rescuer. So that took <laughs> in me into 10 days to an outpatient program. Wow. Yeah. Because it was mom issues and mom issues. Yep. You can't, it's hard to do mom issues on your own. In fact, I told my therapist, I said, why, why when I feel super strong, am I, am I doing this and ready to peel back this 
this layer and she said because you have to be really strong to have mom to deal with your mom issues you have to be mm-hmm. strongest and so I went 10 days again to an outpatient program this time um, down in Arizona again a different system and it helped me really see what was happening with that relationship and um, so after that I did not speak to her again yeah and that allowed me a lot of freedom to do other things. And so one of those things was I I had also gotten out of that second relationship. So I was, I was single. I was doing really good at my job. I I worked for Microsoft had been there a long time and um, my career was going good. I was just, I was really happy. I moved up to Washington, back up to Washington from Arizona. And um, I met someone from Ireland (laughs) and we um after being friends for a really long time we fell in love and started thinking about oh can I you know could I move there like could I do that and one day he go I was talking about dreams and I said you know my dream is to open is to open a a program that people could afford a trauma program people could actually afford and get the opportunity to do what I did and he goes then what are you doing working here like that and that's all it took. And I was yeah. with, within months, I had um, sold everything, quit my job, uh, traveled around, su- said goodbye to my friends, couch surfed. It was great. And I moved to Ireland and um, went back to university at 50, <laughs> which was frightening. So I'm just now, I'm in my final month. I've actually got three assignments and then I'll be graduated. So. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. So I did my dissertation on trauma coaching, which I'm a big, a big proponent after doing that dissertation. I think it's a huge win that people could get support and it doesn't always have to be from a therapist that if you're trauma informed coaches with lived experiences can be an amazing amazing support system for people. And so my dissertation proved it. I thought so. And then I did all the data on it. And so I'm, I'm very excited about that. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I am hopefully going to start a company this year in Ireland and they really, they don't have anything like it. They don't have anything. They don't even do support groups really. They don't do much wow. support in mental health that way. So it's going to be very new. Um, and I want to support people with adverse childhood experiences and maybe even COVID trauma by, by then, because I think there'll be a lot of people coming off the, yeah. Yeah. coming up with needs help. But yeah. So that's kind of all of it in a nutshell. That's awesome. That's amazing. I'm just sitting here like, yeah, I, I me too. Like you're like talking about your mom and I'm like, yeah, I cut mine off like two years ago. <laughs> like, yeah. Very, hard stuff. very emotionally abusive, very like, I've told her not to contact me at all. And I've blocked her on all the things. She sends me letters. Yeah. Yeah. My mom did keep doing that even after the blocking. Now she did pass away. It'll be uh, in two weeks. It'll be two years that when she passed away. And I will say, um, interestingly, (laughs) so I hadn't talked to her and I had made peace. You know, everybody's like, oh, how's that going to work? What if she dies? You know, and I'm like, I've made peace with it. Right. That, but I happened to be coming back to the States the week she got um, her stroke and I was coming back to the States anyway. So I did go and I was there when she, I was, you weirdly enough, 
I was the only one in the room when she died. Wow. Yeah. And she waited until I got there and she waited days and days and days with no food, no water before. And then when I got there the next day, she died, but I happened to be the only one in the room with her. And I will say it was, um, an honor to be there. And the way I look at it now is I get to have the relationship I wanted to have with my mom. I get to choose what that relationship looks like. And there was some, you know, she, she was wonderful in so many things. She, uh, she was great at so Christmas, she would every year come and do a, my Christmas tree and wrap all my presents. And she did them Aww. all beautifully. So now at Christmas, I can really like have that relationship with her that, you know, I wanted to have with her. Yeah. It's hard to and talk to people sometimes about it because they're like, oh my God, your mom must already always been a horrible person. I'm like, actually, no, like no. that's the problem is there were some really good times. Like when I found yeah. out I was pregnant with my daughter when I was 16 she was super supportive about me making whatever decision I wanted to. She helped me out with my daughter. But so I have these moments where she was a really good mom, but then also very manipulative, very, you know, emotionally abusive, like all these things. So I'm like, you, you know, if your parent was just a shit parent, like there was no good for the whole time. It'd be easy to just be like, no, bye. But it's not when they're not. Mm just complete shit all the time. She definitely wasn't, you know, she, I mean, she took care of both my kids when they were born. She babysat them for their first two years, both their lives. And she was great with them. She was, they were so lucky to have her as well as me, you know, to have, be able to leave my kids with someone I trusted. And she was the fun, fun grandma. She just did crazy fun things with them and they'll have great memories from that. Um, And like I said, she was my best friend. I always thought that, but she started just, it just got bad. And she was doing things that I just could not sit with. And, and even on her deathbed, she jacked around with me. Um, She left me some pictures and on one of my baby pictures, she put a last name that I do not recognize and do not know with my name. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. That just happened not too well, two years ago. And that was like, what the hell? And so what I want to say about that, why that's important is I think if I didn't have my recovery, because I spun on that shit for a while, let me tell you, yeah. I, I looked for that last name because I talked to everybody. And again, nobody seemed to understand where this could have come from. And I think she was so desperate to find me a dad when she got pregnant. I don't even know who this person was, but it had to have been somebody she at some point must have thought could have been his yeah. maybe. I, I don't even know because she never gain consciousness when I found this out, right? Without my recovery, I don't know how much I would have spun on it or been obsessed over finding it. And I was able to just kind of shut that down after a while. And I, on a side note, I have a really, really great relationship with my biological dad now and his wife. And I have had since I was 19. So, and I look like him. I mean, everybody's like, oh, come on, I think he's probably pretty much your dad. That's probably yeah. who it is, right? So, <laughs> so I was able to kind of shut it down, but it took me a little bit to gain to get it under control because it was such a shock. You know, here my mother is literally dying in the bed next to me, and I'm looking at this bizarre picture of me as a baby with not, you know, anyone's last name. So that was crazy. Um, and then when I just found out about the kids being abused, I just found that out, you know, a month ago. And again, I could name it 
claim it and go, okay, I feel betrayed, but I feel like a 14 year old that just was betrayed. Yeah. And, uh, and be able to kind of use those tools, talk to my therapist, talk to my support group, whatever that is, and use those tools to help me. So I don't sink into a place of, um, that's not good for me. So I recovery telling and recovery. Those are the two things that just (laughs) have to be done. have to be done. And so. I know you mentioned uh, trauma-informed therapists. I do need to preface that people need to be very careful because there are some people who claim yep. <laughs> to be trauma-informed and to have the experience to back that up and not and go mucking True. around in places they shouldn't. True. So uh, what are some what are some tips that you would give people when looking uh, for a, a trauma-informed coach, not therapist, coach? Yeah, a coach. Well, so there is or both. <laughs> yeah, because actually, some of the data that came out of my dissertation was a lot of them became trauma informed coaches because their therapist had triggered the hell out of them because they weren't trauma informed. Because there's therapists that are not trauma informed. Yeah, right. And so, I think being trauma informed is so key to know that safety is important. Like safety is number one, and all of that. Mm-hmm. So. For me, I would look for someone who's got the certification. They've literally, so this group that I interviewed for my dissertation went through a trauma coaching program. So spent six months in a trauma coaching program. So they are out there. um, And that's what you want to ask. Make sure that they have the certifications to back them up. So it's one thing if they have lived experience, because I do think that's important if someone's got their own recovery under their belt and has lived experience. But if they don't have some trauma-informed basics to go with that. I think it, to your point, it could be, um, it could be hard. I, and I'm going to actually go through that certification starting in, our, in August, because even though I just spent three years studying, you know, I still don't feel I probably have everything I need to support, right. Support everyone. And a perfect example of that is, um, and I think you actually touched about this on one of your podcasts is, you did about the trigger one is what triggers you or what triggers someone else may not be. Yeah. I don't get triggered easily actually. Right. But that doesn't mean someone I'm speaking to doesn't get triggered easily. So I have to be really careful in what I choose to say or things I ask. And same with safety, like safety for me is like, I feel pretty safe most of the time, but a lot of people do not feel safe. That safety is an issue for me. Safety is a huge issue. Right. So I've learned that I have a, well, I, there's two things. My, my therapist always says, the reason I probably don't worry about safety is because I don't ever think below my neck. Nothing gets into my heart or my body. I, I keep everything head, head here. So I'm logical. And I just don't let any emotions get past, which is not a good thing, but that's, right. that's my wall, unfortunately, that I'm working on. But the other thing that happened, um, <laughs> so when I did the 10 days of outpatient, to deal with my mom stuff. When I first got there, they said, okay, we're going to go have you take some tests. And it was tests like, well, in the end, what it ended up being was an ACEs test, right? So how many adverse childhood experiences do you have? Okay. So then they call you back in and a psychologist is looking at this massive book on his desk and I'm sitting there and he's like flipping through these pages. And I'm like, what is he doing? And he's going smoking, excessive drinking, stripping, 
um, promiscuous. I mean, he was just naming all these things. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he goes, you should have all these things with your ACE score. I had an ACE score of seven. He goes, all of these things should apply to you. And none of the things apply to you. And he goes, and to be honest, I've never seen anything like it. And he goes, so I said, well, is that bad? And he goes, what I would recommend is you take your resilience. Somehow you got some resilience chip in you and go do something with it because I don't, I can't even explain it to you. And so that's all I can, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Well, I I just, (laughs) I just wrote a capstone paper to finish off my bachelor's degree on the relationship between bipolar disorder and childhood trauma. And what I ended up coming to the conclusion was trauma, childhood trauma is complex. It's very complex. Like I, I split my paper into three portions. So uh, defining bipolar disorder, what it is, like what the symptoms are, like all these different things, what contributes to it? And then what is childhood trauma? And the same thing, what is it? Like, how does it contribute? All the, and they are complex things. Like mm. you're not going to, and the relation, that's why I, my, my ultimate statement in that paper was the relationship between the two is very complex because like, you're not, you can't just say, oh, because somebody experienced these traumas, they're going to develop bipolar disorder because that's right. not how it works. No. So like it, 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 it's so complex. And, and that's why I'm sharing is because like, I already knew it was complex, but when I was doing this research, that's, there was no like one, this is what's going to happen when you experience childhood trauma. Some people will be quote unquote fine. And some people will like, I mean, you're talking about stripping, drinking, doing drugs. I'm like, well, I was drinking and I probably stripped sometimes when I was drunk. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, not everybody's going to experience the same things. Um, So yeah, it's, it's, you just don't know. You just don't know how it's going to impact you. You don't know. And I, but I would say even for me, right. I didn't think it impacted me. Of course I didn't. Well, one, I didn't want to give any power to him and to me admitting it impacted. Well, first I just didn't think, I'm like, I I got this life. I've got a good life and I'm getting through life. I'm all, I'm good. Right. And I'm not going to give him any power. So I'm going to make sure I have a good life. I'm going to fight that. Right. The wounds are there. You can't, I Everyone, if you've gone through traumatic experiences, like childhood experiences like that, you can't escape clean. That is my belief. The evidence says it, the experience, I mean, something's going to show somewhere and it might be like mine where it was showing in a, in a way that almost looks like everybody would have those things. So shopping, well, everybody loves shopping. Yeah. Mine was different, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so, um, and someday it's going to hit you. My, I was 40, you know, I, there, there is a lot of, there used to be all these shows that someone was crying in a closet at 40 because the mom's having a mental breakdown in the closet, right? At 40, that really happened to me. That was real. I wasn't in the closet crying, but I, it was that age that it all kind of came together. So I believe no matter how old you are, um, recovery is out there for you. And it's whether you just learned about it whether you're 19 or whether you're 67, you can get recovery. That's, it's never too late, right? And and it will help not just you, it helps everybody around you, your family members, your work. It shows up in work. 
so much more than you probably realize. In fact, that's one of my next things I want to do is start kind of combining all my 30 years of business experience with my trauma-informed experience and my education now and my lived experience and put it all together to start going into corporations and teaching how trauma shows up at work. Wow. So yeah, yeah cause I, I, I want to call it, are you taking your mother to work? Because <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's it. Right. And it could be fill in the blank, but it, right. it sets the tone. Right. Is, and most people are taking them to work and it's showing up. So, and, and sometimes maybe in a positive way, you know, it might be getting you somewhere getting you that next raise or turning you into workaholic like I was, but so, yeah, so I am really hoping to build out a trauma program of a trauma support program of something, whether that starts as retreats, you know, cause I, four days of retreats is like 40 hours of counseling because that's how they kind of look at a residential or intensive program. And they say for every hour you're working in an intensive program, it is like having an hour of counseling. So that's to your point, kind of getting it all at one time and just going and taking care of it versus this drip system that most people have to go through. Yeah. Yeah. So as we wrap up the podcast today, what would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? Mm. If, you know, I tell my story now because there's so many women and men out there, lots of women and lots of men that have, don't have their voice yet. They just Mm -hmm. haven't been able to do it for whatever reason. I'm, I, there's no judgment. I get that. I mean, whatever reason. And I would hope that I've given enough examples of why it's important to say something because, you know, even if it's not happened in 20 years, I, I just, as much as I hate to say this, was it your dad? And now you have grandkids, you have children and your yep. children are spending time with your dad. I mean, I hate to put that into people's heads, but frankly, I know a, an example of when that happened. <sighs> Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not about to out somebody, but I, you know, yeah, it, it happens. Yeah. Me, but yeah, it does happen. Yeah, so, so I think I laid out very clearly multiple places where people didn't say anything and then the abuse just kept going. So stopping the trauma, mm-hmm. stopping the abuse and whatever that looks like, and then find a way to get recovery, whether it's even at a minimum, it's a support group where other people, you know, who have been through similar. So for me, um, ASCA, which is Adult Survivors of Childhood Abuse, um, a US-based prof- nonprofit organization, I just uh, helped start one in Northern Ireland, and we've been doing it since December. And it's, a, you know, people who have never seen support groups are getting to go, and it's just a way for people to go and be supported in feeling things that other people wouldn't understand if they haven't been through it. So get support. Please tell your story somehow, some way in a safe place. Well, Holly, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. I know it's such a serious, very serious topic. Um, and you know, I, I am one it's come out that my, my oldest daughter is one. Um, mm, so sorry. I mean, not, I, I had no idea, obviously, which is, you know, again, that guilt where you're like, I should have seen it. Like not, Mm-mm. it wasn't somebody I was in a relationship with, but somebody we knew, like you should have seen, you know, you feel like you're like, I should have caught it. Um, but 
unfortunately happened, but it also gave me tools to try to prevent it from happening to my little people too. Like, because she's 18, my youngest ones are going to be, or she just turned 18. My youngest ones are going to be 10 this year to prevent it from happening to them, you know, is because once, once you, you know how it happened to one person, then it can help try to prevent it for other people. So very serious subjects. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.